Hi, everybody, and welcome back to, well, what you probably thought was the second installment of the 10 Rules of Business. Unfortunately, my dad, Mike, decided to jump out of the office for a vacation before tax right after we started this series. So I figured we'd start and go ahead and um, take a look back at his very first episode, my very first episode that we did kind of as a test run back in 2019. So if you want to hear Mike's story and his backstory and all the things um, he's done and where he came from, go ahead and tune into this. And if you hate the audio, just know that this was recorded at my house with two very crappy USB mics. So thank you guys and listen tight. Welcome to the Performance Podcast. This is your fearless host and leader, Sean Kirby with the Performance Group. I want to take a second to say thank you for tuning in. Our intention behind this podcast is to give you the opportunity to learn more about us individually and as a company. And with that being said, in episode one, we sat down with Mike Kirby, my father, the founder and owner of the Performance Group. Mike is a prominent businessman in the town of Pendleton, Indiana. He is... My best friend and a mentor, I've learned a lot from him the last couple of years. Um, he's trying to learn a little bit from me as well. Uh, so this podcast, if you listen to our actual interview, it takes us a little bit to get started and uh, kind of find the right beat. I think he was just kind of trying to feel out the process and procedures of it. I don't think he's um, ever even listened to a podcast, so a lot of it was a little give and take from both of us. But it ended up being a very good episode. I think there was a lot of information that I didn't know prior, and there's a lot of really good tidbits in there. So I'm excited for you guys to take a listen. So I guess the way that I'm trying to get this to work is to use it as a way of, especially in this first one, to depict the beginning to where we are now um maybe not the performance in 04 but how you got to the performance in 04 i think your story is pretty exciting and um, interesting to say the least so i really wanted to i think the best way to do this is you have to questions are, are you asking questions i mean I how's, the, how's the format so it's very um <clears throat> story driven so it's very uh, conversational, the same way if you and I were just two people drinking beers, asking these same questions, or just kind of, you are a prominent businessman in Pendleton, Indiana, you have 11 things going for you, 13 things, however many it is now, 14, 14 as of last week. So, originally, you know, that wasn't exactly on the docket, was it? Not all 14? Uh, no. No. So if you go, ATO Mike Kirby just graduated from high school. What's your plan? Uh, get out of Daleville, Indiana. <laughs> Fair enough. So I had an uncle that lived all the way out in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Uh, started at Scotts Bluff Junior College. Um, basically doing simple undergrad stuff. Um, as far west as you could. It's 1982 fall. And had come out uh, the spring of that year prior to graduating high school. And the economy wasn't horrible, but it wasn't uh, booming. 
saw that there were a few ag jobs, um, did not want to work in a restaurant or anything like that. Uh, went out there with maybe $1,000. Mom and dad weren't in a position to help with school, but school wasn't horribly expensive back then. Paid for my first semester, had planned to work my way through school, and long story short that after application after application, just ran out of money. Yeah. And um, hadn't made really some inroads into uh, much out there other than I knew that I uh, wanted to continue in school, but farming is the route I was headed down. So I come back to Indiana and uh, went back to the farm, started working. Uh, worked for a guy that had graduated from Purdue, and he encouraged me to go to Purdue. So I went there and uh, entered the School of Agriculture. And what year was that? Because I assumed, you know, I've heard this story probably a hundred times. I always thought it was Purdue Nebraska somehow ended up at Hobart. So it was Nebraska first? Nebraska first. I didn't know that. Then Purdue School of Agriculture. So it's 1982 still. Oh, wow. So, um, well, I guess it was 1983 by then that I uh, got accepted to Purdue and went through their ag school. Um, came out, knew that the really the only thing that I wanted to do then was get a job. Broke. No money. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and my buddy uh, had gone to Hobart. This is still, the economy is really in the tank. Ronald Reagan was just getting started as president at that time. And um, still some manufacturing jobs in Anderson. Uh, so I went over to Hobart School of Welding for three or four months and uh, basically got the fundamentals in welding and Came back and got a job at Anderson Tool and Engineering and really began um, what I would consider some precision welding. So I was welding machine stock. I was welding any type of material, aluminum, stainless, everything. Loved it, um, but knew I was going to be an old man quick. If I, that's, not, that's not a job that, that you could see yourself doing for the next 30 or 40 years. So I watched. I knew there was a certain level of uh, lifestyle that I wanted. So I watched the guys that were selling stuff. They were dressed nice and they were driving nice vehicles. And I always thought I'd like to be in sales. Yeah. At the same time, fast forward the picture to about 1986, the only other thing I knew I wanted to do was coach wrestling. So I started coaching wrestling um, at my high school. And little known to me that uh, they were recruiting coaches uh, or life investors came in and was recruiting coaches and so I started in the life insurance industry um, basically on a part-time basis and the way the model worked back then is you sell your friends and family and I was fortunate to have a pretty wide group of friends and was fairly successful in the beginning um, but also knew that uh, the living that I wanted to make because of the way the the hierarchy worked uh, with the company that it was really going to be tough. So uh, my ultimate goal was to become a general agent, run my own shop, uh, recruiting and training other agents, and that just wasn't going to happen where I was. At that time, I was uh, asked to join the corporate staff as a regional director for Life Investors, traveling Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. This was about Oh, I'd say 1988, 89. And 
uh, started doing that. And what I was really doing was learning how to deal with people, learning systems that were transferable. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, uh, the biggest thing that I learned is that uh, from a people perspective, there's a lot of people out there in jobs that really want a career. Yeah. And we were basically telling a story. I mean, you could find that same success in multi-level marketing and all kinds of things where people who were stuck in this nine-to-five grind of just eking out a living wanted to do more. Would you say that was that piece that you used to recruit people was the same way you were recruited into the business? Absolutely. It was uh, opportunity uh, to grow. It was an environment. It was fun. And then we wanted to make money. So that has carried forward throughout anything we've ever done. And that basically was the basis for anything that I, through the ranks, uh, was, was not only offering, I was preaching, and I was saying opportunity environment all the time. Don't mind the neighbors. <laughs> Horn blows. Horn blows. Um, so opportunity, money, environment, young, money. hungry. Yeah. Never really... You always wanted to um, be the idea of wealthy. Um, what made you want the nice suit, the nice cars, those types of things? I know it wasn't something exactly you grew up with. Um, going from farm and ag to the insurance side of things, um, do you think that was there was a reason that you went that direction specifically? Yeah. Kind of like you know, uh, my mom and dad were uh, very blue collar. Um, we grew up, you know, I had three wonderful sisters and mom and dad who loved us, but they just never made a lot of money. And I always had that dream of the nice house, the nice cars, uh, the nice clothes, sort of the the American dream of, hey, I want to be something someday. Unfortunately, I think some of that's lost. And in hindsight, at 55 years old, it isn't the car, it isn't the, the clothes, it isn't the house. But you learn that over time as a young person. It's kind of that American dream is I want I want to go, I want to do, I want to be. Yeah. So I would say even in today's age, that's almost magnified. Um, these kids that go to school, they're always due to social media and all those other pieces and bits. That's the only way to obtain this American dream, wouldn't you say? I would say the perception is that the perception is <clears throat> money is success. I think in hindsight, after all these years, I would say that um, money is a byproduct of doing one major thing, and that is helping other people <coughs> get what they want. If you help enough people get what they want, you always get what you want. Yeah. <coughs> and so over the years, I've kind of kept that as the focus. Um, even when we were running down the road as an RD, I never, ever thought about how much money I was making. I never thought about how much money I wasn't making. I just believed in that fundamental that if I help enough people get what they want, I will always get what I want. So it's karma. Um, yeah, it's impossible to help people get. It's in, it's impossible to get more than you give. It's just impossible. Yeah. Or to give more than you get. So um, it, that also led down the path of some really deep, meaningful relationships. I, I can tell you today that uh, out of the hundreds, if not thousands, uh, folks that I worked with, um, they're only a phone call away. If I picked up the phone today, uh, they would answer and we would reminisce on all the fun times we had because it was never about one of us taking advantage of the other. It was we 
we had a common vision, a common goal, and a common dream, and we both worked toward it. So, and that's at the corporate level, and I believe that's what we're trying to do today in, in the businesses we own. So that would have been the late 80s, early 90s, correct? The uh, running down the road for Life Investors really started in 1990. Okay. And so the 80s were building the foundation. The 90s really was just pouring gas on it. Um, I was blessed to have some mentors that, for whatever reason, saw something in me that uh, then they, they just poured fuel on it. They, they knew I cared a lot about people. Um, I was fortunate to be articulate enough to be able to stand up and, and share a vision that sometimes motivated people to do things that uh, were extraordinary. Um, and it was really just being able to tell the story. And, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun to, to watch, especially our young people, because because we had a college program back there back then when we would recruit on college campuses. And I saw, even though I was in my, oh, approaching my 30s, maybe even my young 30s at the time, I saw those college kids just like I was. They were hungry. Uh, they wanted more, most of whom didn't grow up with money, but knew that that dream was possible. And many of them are still in the business today. Yeah, would you, th- when you say that young people are hungry, and this is maybe from my own perspective, being a young person today, it's, it's hard to see that in a lot of kids now. I, I just feel like almost it's like kids these days don't have a lot to want. They're, they're not left hungry enough that they feel like they have to go out and earn that extra bit. Do you feel that way or do you think maybe I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe call them the, the snowflakes or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's any different. You know, if you take the percentage of people who have, let's just call it the entrepreneurial heart or, or vision or dream, that percentage probably isn't much different than when I was growing up. Uh, the one major factor is everyone will tell you they want to do it. Everyone will say, this is what I want. The difference is there's few people that will do it. Uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's walking around with no money in your pocket early on. And I've always said it's impossible to help somebody uh, out of walking around with no money in your pocket if you've never done that. So to, to answer your question on do I think millennials are different, i got to be honest with you, I don't think so. I think you'll find um, in the millennial generation, there's a certain segment uh, that will always want a job because they like that, quote unquote, they think security yeah. of a nine to five 401k health insurance, which there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you'll find a certain uh, segment that are the dream dreamers, meaning that they live in this um, almost unrealistic world where you where where they've got these these visions of grandeur that um, are, are fantastic, to say the least, but unrealistic in the time frames that they're putting in there. I mean, I, I watch, and I think my generation was the same way. We want everything that our parents earned over a 20, 25-year period. It seems as though that generations collapse that time frame and say, well, I've got to have it in two years. I would agree. I say, and this is could remote back to social media in the sense of instant gratification. Everybody, and especially in my field of insurance, everybody wants something yesterday. And from, we know in tax and everything else, especially when people are dealing with refunds, they want it, when they have to wait 10 days for their own money to come back that they were lending to the government for the last year, they want it yesterday. 
So I think that that idea of instant gratification has really almost ruined some of these kids into thinking that, well, I just graduated from school, so I deserve a $100,000 a year job, a brand new car, and a brand new house because I saw it on Instagram that these you know influencers or whatever they are are pretty much just making it up so they can make their own hay on the side. Yeah, I... You know, I used to uh, draw up on a whiteboard, I don't know, countless times. Um, and I would draw a scale, if you can imagine, the legal scale. Um, on one side of the scale, I would write the word contribution. On the other side of the scale, I'd write rewards. And if you can envision that scale and an environment we live in today where just as you described, kids want it immediately. In other words, they want that contrib- or they want that reward before they've made the contribution. That is the greatest risk of anyone, regardless of their age, is to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and take my reward, even though I haven't made the contribution. And in my mind, that's called debt. Well, that's what I was thinking in my head while you were explaining it. So I think kids, you know, they know it's bad to be in debt, but they're their lack of understanding of debt itself. But part of that is, scholastically, they don't preach debt. They well, want you to go into debt, scholastically, right? Speaking, right. when it comes to colleges, that they don't offer these extra programs of personal finance and all the other bits and pieces that these kids really, really need, right? I think those classes are probably available somewhere, but it's a lot easier not to take them. Um you know, I, I hear this as I find it fascinating to me that we don't teach kids how to balance a checkbook. Well, the reason is because you don't use a checkbook. You use a debit card, which in my mind, as a, as a guy in this business for 30 years, is a tremendous risk because if I'm swiping a card, uh, there's no real tangible value to that. It's just a piece of plastic. It's hard to wrap your head around, well, I, I just walked into the store, walked out with whatever I wanted, and all it was was a piece of plastic. There's no <clears throat> there's no risk to that yet until the end of the month. Or if it's a debit card, I try to go look and see how much is in my account, and I don't have any. Or you're doing it on your phone while you're in line putting stuff back. And if, yeah, exactly. Or I'm doing it online, looking to see what's in there, forgetting that, oh, yeah, I've got rent, I've got a house Other payment, I've got insurance. Yeah. So... So to, to me, it's just a fundamental lack of knowledge, and it's, I, I won't even just say it's millennials. It's throughout, um, it's, it's pervasive throughout our society. Uh, we see it all the time. Now, some, some of these fundamentals <clears throat> should be taught from one generation to the next, but i got to be honest with you, we have a generation uh, that's even my age that, for the most part, uh, they remember the checkbook or they remember balancing the checkbook but they don't feel confident in trying to teach it because they've made their own mistakes. And it's not to say that we've done everything right. We certainly haven't. But there are certain systems, fundamental systems, that everybody must know. And one of them is if your outflow exceeds your income, your overhead's your downfall. Exactly. I think I've heard that in the businesses maybe once every three months for the last four years. It's fundamentals. But... If we take it back, I coach wrestling as well. What do you teach first? Well, if you don't have it, if you don't have your fundamentals, I mean, you can't take the next step without it. Yeah, and using the wrestling analogy, it's awfully 
<clears throat> awfully difficult to win in wrestling without fundamentals. Now, you may have fundamental strength. You may have stamina. You may have uh, God-given talent as an athlete. But you're eventually going to meet the kid who doesn't have those three things, who spent the time and, the, and, the, and put in the, the effort to learn fundamental techniques, and they'll kick your ass. Yeah. And, and life is the same way financially. If you don't have the fundamentals, the basics of, hey, I can't spend more than I make. Hey, I probably ought to set aside some money for, um, for the emergencies. And by the way, the time value of money, when I'm 20 years old, I probably ought to set a little bit aside so someday I have the choice to retire. <clears throat> but all those things, having said all those things, um, going back to running down the road in the 90s, that's what we were talking to people about, uh, as well as teaching them fundamental ways to talk to clients about it. Mm-hmm. So it was an invaluable, um, uh, I'll say, foundation for me Yeah. Um, to, th- that led to the the first objective when we when we retired in two thousand four, um, which was to come back and be a, a financial advisor. Yeah, I think I think that's um, a crazy roundabout way to end up back home, right? Yeah, I I'd read a long time ago. There's one of two reasons you come home. One, you failed, so you got to move back in with your folks. Well, that wasn't an option for me. Yeah. Or two, you succeeded and you wanted to come home to your family, which is certainly the, the driver behind uh, our reason to move from back from Iowa to Indiana. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think, I think from there, then, you know, you just, you make your way. You, you put your neck out there and you say, all right, we're, we're going to make a go of this. Yeah, and that was in 2004, about four years before... The market drop in 2004. I would have been eight. Where exactly were? I don't want to say we personally, financially, but in the sense of the U.S. economy. You know, in 2004, I wasn't paying much attention other than the Boston Red Sox finally won a World Series. What exactly? Um, where would you say we were in comparison to 2008, and then again in comparison to where we are today in 2019? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, you have to separate the market from the economy. Because a lot of people in today's society believe the market is a reflection of the economy. <clears throat> and it is sometimes. But it's, uh, it certainly isn't the foundation. So let's go to 2004. Um, you have to remember, we were coming off of white, the, the, uh, the 2000, um, the 90s dot-com <clears throat> bust, which happened in 2000, 2001, certainly post 9-11. Yeah. So I would say we were back on the upstroke. Because jobs were plentiful, um, incomes were good. Um, you could say that gross domestic product was good. Um, I think she's eating my. Yeah, she's eating your jacket. Millie, stop eating my jacket. She eats the pieces off my sweatshirt every single time. Like so, um, 2004, things were good. I think real estate was overpriced. That's back. Probably the beginning of the um, that of of the crisis, the lending crisis. <clears throat> so we were still building on a, what I would almost consider a false economy. Well, people from the <laughs> at least the documentaries I've watched, it was a can't can't lose housing market. No question, that was the perception. As we found out in two thousand nine, uh, that wasn't the case. But they had lightened up the lending um, requirements. 
to the point, and it, I believe it started post um, 9-11, <laughs> that um, there was this huge uh, political push and, and even quoting like uh, uh, Chris Dodd and some others who were in Congress at the time, Barney Frank as a, as a prime example, which is funny because after the, the collapse, we had the Dodd-Frank financial rules, which those two bastards are the reason why, they, they really are the reason it was caused, because they were saying it's, it was racist not to lend everybody in the United States free money to buy a house, which is just bullshit. Um, so what happened was we, we had basically everybody had turned a blind eye to any lending. And I remember in 2004, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because when I first came back, I was selling life insurance for uh, mortgages. Yeah. And uh, so in other words, you'd buy life insurance that in case you died, it'd pay off the mortgage. <clears throat> I was walking into homes in Indianapolis in brand new additions that didn't have a bit of furniture in them. And, the, and I talked to the young couple and they had lost, they had just been kicked out of where they were renting because they hadn't paid rent and they were moving into a brand new home. How could? Because they didn't have, basically, as long as the house appraised, which, by the way, if you think about it back then, you had builders who had their own appraisers and their own lenders. What a conflict of interest. So they just do a drive by appraisal. They could borrow 120% of the value of the home. Oh, no way. Yeah. And next thing you know, They'd been kicked out of their house because, they, or their apartment because they hadn't paid rent, but they're in a brand new fucking home with no furniture in it. And we look at ourselves now and we go, that is insane. Yeah. That is absolutely insane. So going back to your fundamentals of whether it's millennials or, or uh, the next generation or my generation, people, are, people can absolutely be foolish when it comes to money. They believe that, oh, it couldn't happen to me. And by God... By 2007, 2008, that, uh, that bubble started to burst. So from, from my perspective, you asked about the economy. We were building ourselves another bubble. We we're building another, hey, this is America. Everybody should have everything that everybody else has. And uh, in a capitalist society, we, that's just bullshit. It's not the way it works. So compare that to today. Compare that to the housing market we're seeing now where people are overpaying for houses because otherwise there's nothing on the market. Just look at Pendleton. Um, we've seen it in the last six months, nine months, a year is probably the best way to look at it. 2018, I can only imagine realtors were looking at their numbers, licking their chops, right? Um, compare that to 2004 leading up to the bubble burst. And the only reason I ask that is, you know, I have kids my age that, you know, these houses are getting on the market around another bubble. So they're also who are eight years old, same as me when everything happened before. They're just kind of looking back at history and say, are we putting ourselves back in the same or similar position? Or are we just growing that well? Is the economy in a position where, I mean, people aren't borrowing 120% on houses anymore. I can guarantee you that. I've been looking into mortgage stuff for two years now. Where exactly do you think we are currently in 2019? Well, um, we certainly uh, are. I, I don't know that we're going to end up where we where we were in 2004, five, and six, going into seven, because hopefully we learned a little bit of a lesson. But there's no question that um, some of the regulatory. Uh, 
uh, easing on banking could could lead us down a path of that. But I think we're in a supply demand issue. <clears throat> if you talk to our realtors right now, we have uh, a migration from urban America into suburban America, and it's a natural thing now, just from our our geographic location, that we have now six lanes to and from Indianapolis, that the millennials, uh, 19 miles down the road, are paying $300,000 for a 1,500-square-foot house where they can move this direction and they spend 100000 Now, there's two positive things that come from that. Number one, uh, we're starting to see Madison County, which, quite frankly, has been in a recession for 25 years, <clears throat> um, importing and attracting um, young, professional, educated people. Now, why is that important? Because if you're a, a corporation, you're going to move where taxes are favorable. You're going to move to uh, where geographically you have uh, and logistically you have um, central locations to move your goods and services. But most importantly, you're going to move where um, educated people are. So there's some really positive things that are coming. But you do see a migration from um, what I would consider overpriced housing per square foot into underpriced housing. That's a supply-demand thing. And lending itself, I wouldn't say is so flippant as it was in 2004, but it certainly, as you've learned, um, does have enough hurdles, enough inspection, enough requirement to make sure that you are who you say you are, you do have the income that you say you have, and that you are readily uh, available to pay the bill. So uh, if somebody overpays for real estate, that's happened hundreds of times throughout time. Just hundreds. (laughs) Hundreds of times. So, I mean, it is what it is. But the the long and the short of it is, going back to your economic question, I believe uh, this particular economy is doing extraordinarily well. Jobs are great. Unemployment is great. Incomes are rising. Manufacturing is coming back. Um, GDP is good. Uh, Don't get me wrong. We have some glitches occasionally, but that's just, that's economies. Yeah. And with what we do in the, and I would call you a a very um, a very good entrepreneur, someone who's came in. Your original plan was just to be a financial advisor. Next thing you know, we're filing our fourteenth LLC. Um, you know, small town business. Eighteenth. We've had we've had four that we shut down. But well, go ahead. I wasn't going to mention those just to save you the. The worry. But but no, it isn't that. It's just you have to realize that when you're an entrepreneur, you're going to try some things. And then the difference between success and failure is knowing when it's not working. Rather than the economy shutting you down, you just make that decision. Yeah, I mean, 14 out of 18, 77% is not too bad on um, up and running businesses, correct? So that's well, we didn't, 15 yeah. years. That's crazy. Yeah, the word failure... Uh, if if you if you're in business and you don't have some failures, you're probably not getting much done. Yeah. So in the eyes of an entrepreneur who started in 2004, going in and going through 2008, um, and making it out of 2008, right? Yeah. Um, there were a lot of entrepreneurs. I would say probably did not make it through 2008. As and a lot of people that had good jobs that barely made it through 2008. No question. So, yeah. 
now that we're in 2019, hindsight's 2020, right? Um, from the entrepreneurial perspective, do you see more people coming into a similar entrepreneur small business field? Or are you seeing a lot more people sticking with the, as you said, ease and comfort of a 401k, a good pension program, which realistically anymore, if you have a pension, you're one of the only ones. So do you I, see I, a lot of the comfort of a W-2 employee type of piece? or I, I would say there's a couple factors. Um, you see a lot more entrepreneurship when the economy goes south. Okay. Because they're transitioning from that comfort job <clears throat> and they've got to make a living. So when companies downsize and companies <clears throat> make changes, that's really where you see a lot of, of drive on the entrepreneurial side, um, just, just out of survival. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the whole technology, dot-com, all that kind of stuff. So I can't really speak to that because that's, that's way above my pay grade. Yeah, but as far as you know, the, the average contractor, the average you know, landscaper, the retail store, um, I see those happening a lot more during a downturn. Because human nature is, I want benefits. I want health insurance. I want to have um, you know a four hundred one k. I want a steady paycheck. That's just natural for ninety percent of the people. That's where they land. Yeah. So I don't see that a lot today. Um, I I know people who think that way and probably have the talent and the expertise to do it, but it's not easy. I mean, uh, if someone thinks you're going to be an entrepreneur and work forty hours a week, uh, they're going to fail. They may as well hang up their track shoes and you know go pump gas somewhere because it's not going to happen. Um, I think that that if the rise in entrepreneurship, there's so many factors. One, your family first. You know, it's hard to become an entrepreneur to take the risk if you have uh, a family. I mean, if you, it's not about you anymore. It's about your spouse and it's about your children, and so. They're under the, under the Obamacare uh, era. Health insurance plays a huge factor in that, yeah. Because it's not just the risk of a paycheck now; it's the risk of health care and any assets that you've accumulated could be at, at jeopardy or in jeopardy if if someone's health changes. So, going back to the entrepreneurial piece, you have to have balls the size of Texas if you're in a nine to five job making six figures with health care and 401k to say I'm gonna bust out on my own. Yeah. Because of those risks. Well that makes sense. I guess when I thought originally of entrepreneurship, I think of somebody who's been a, since they were a kid, they've been selling candy door to door or whatever and they came out and they're like, this is what I want to do. I don't really think of and it, this is probably just maybe ignorance is not thinking of the people that lose their jobs that then go, well, I only got one option. I've got to work for myself and survive for my family and do the things. And So that makes a lot more sense. So when you look at small businesses today and you look at your own and you look at all these larger corporations, um, especially in insurance, it seems like all these larger corporations are buying out mom and pops. So mom and pop can go be a W-2 employee. Um would you, and I guess maybe that's not the right question, would you advise, um, would you be against someone saying, you know what, I'm going to let someone else run the ship, steer the ship, buy me out of my my small business, and they just keep me on as a W-2 employee, I get paid 
you know, I take a cut. I have no ownership now. And but I have month to month, my expenses are perfectly set up for what I get paid, and I have benefits. And the I mean, it's a great question because um, the the it applies at different times in life. I mean, it, it probably changes at different times in life. <clears throat> at my age, you know, you've spent 50, literally fifteen years building this, and bluntly, you know, we're just now on that back end where I'm finally getting. The return on the investment from yeah. the yield. I mean, because if you think about fourteen businesses, they all take startup capital. Yeah, they all take um, a tremendous amount of effort. And so, to answer your question on letting somebody buy me out, the, the reality is I don't play well in other people's sandbox. Otherwise, I'd still be running businesses or corporations uh, as CEO of some, you know, piece of shit insurance company somewhere. Yeah. and I mean that because the the difference is today, it's no longer about the people in a corporation. It's about the bottom line on a quarterly basis. And you have to be wired different. You almost don't care about people. And, and I'm saying that from Jeff Bezos to all the way to me, you know, down out here just doing it. Um, because the, 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 the long and the short of it is this. If you're dealing with mom and, pop, mom and pop America as an entrepreneur, you're making a promise from yourself to them. It's not your product, not your goods. It's your service and it's your promise of that service. That's totally different than um, an Apple today. Apple just throws out products and they hope to hell somebody buys it. Yeah. And it's a game to them because I will promise you, Steve Jobs, and I saw a video from 1983 where Steve Jobs had this whole thing laid out. It was pretty amazing now in hindsight. Um, where iPhone 1 to iPhone 10, he had different uh, uh, videos on when you'd walk into your office and you'd, your computer would come on, which today would be um, uh, whatever the, the, the little box is that you say, hey, turn on. and Yeah, um, the Alexa. Or Alexa, yeah. I mean, that was it was a video from 83 where they were doing that. But going to the question of letting somebody buy me out, I, 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 no question that money talks. Yeah, but all I would simply do if somebody bought me out, I would never want to play in their sandbox if they bought me out. What I'd simply do is go start another business. Yeah, I mean, I think once you've done it and you have the freedom, um, and and I use that word uh, not lightly uh, because freedom is one of those things that takes a tremendous amount of courage. Yeah. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to have freedom, and then once you sell out which I don't blame people if they choose to because we all have to have a sunset provision at some point that yeah. you know, eventually I cash out or whether it's, you know, my my legacy is the the young people that are working with me. Um, that, that I would not want to sell out, stay on board and then be an employee and have somebody else tell me what I can and cannot do with my business because that's not going to work. That wasn't the dream. That's not what we do. Yeah, there, there's no bottom dollar that can... Tear you away from the thing that you built, the ship you built. Well, there's always a zero somewhere. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, but there's... the reality is, if that's what we were going to do, we would have done this differently. Yeah. We'd have been a venture capitalist. We would have invested in businesses that we really didn't know anyone. Yeah. Because it, then it's not personal. <clears throat> in in entrepreneurial businesses, it becomes extraordinarily personal. And the clients you've made promises to, the clients who say, "How much longer are you going to do this?" That's that's the foundation. Again, going back to helping people get what they want. I'm also not a believer in large corporations where the CEO makes literally thousands times the average worker. Um, 
I believe it's the major problem we have in this country. We'll save that for a different segment because I have a whole thought process on how to fix some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, But I I do believe that entrepreneurs today who've made a commitment to to their customers um, and to their spouse, who's also their shareholder, um, have more opportunities than than, um, I've ever seen. There's more opportunities to do tons of things. In fact, it's exciting. And a guy like me with ADHD, uh, never diagnosed, but self-diagnosed. Yeah. Um, I see things, and I and I really want to take off with them, but I'm there's only so many hours in a day. Well, and you know, the, in working with you for the last, it's been five, six years now. It's been um, awful. It's been great. It's been full of laugh, tears, and scream matches, and all the other bits and pieces between father and son. Um. If you were to look at small business and employment practices versus the opportunities that these larger corporations can do for these people, and the, the way I, I'm trying to frame this is you've always said hire and retain good good people, right? Attract and keep good people. Close enough. And <coughs> in a small business environment where you can't pay someone – $52,000 a year to be an employee, give them health benefits, give them you know 401k opportunities, a match, and all that stuff from start to finish that these large corporations are doing. How do you retain and attract good people? Well, th- there's, there's a couple of ways. One, um, there's the promise that I'm not going to be in this forever. Yeah. And so you have the legacy part of it. Um, I... Almost everybody that we work with, other than some administrative type folks, uh, understand that they're long term, they have ownership. And so ownership is different than an employee. When you have ownership, you do things like a podcast, which I didn't even know existed prior to this. I'd heard of them, but I didn't know what the yeah. hell they were. The blog um, is what you were but you're doing it because, I, and I'll look at you and say, you know that the future of this organization is you. It's not me. Yeah. And that, you know, someday when I turn the light off for the last time, you're the guy that's going to turn it on uh, following that. Well, that has a totally different meaning than an employee. And I've always said that you're going to be grossly underpaid as an entrepreneur probably for the first two to five years. So you can be grossly overpaid for the rest of your life. Yeah. And what I mean by pay is not just in, not just in monetary sense, but it's also in the environment of uh, having fun, being motivated. It's the opportunity to grow the business. You know, I look at you today and and if you notice, um, you know, I don't run your business. I I don't want to run your business. I'll coach you. I'll work with you. I'm there if you need me, but I'm not a micromanager where I'm going to walk in and say, what'd you do today? Yeah. So going back to that, unlike a quote unquote job, smart entrepreneurs are, are attracting the people that someday... Um, have the potential to own the business when they walk away from it. So I, money comes in one of two ways. It's the income you make and spend, and it's the wealth you keep. Well, as the A perpetuation plan, I got stuck in my own head there. Um, you know, other than your own kin, I'm thinking of... Sally Joe, who runs a catering business, but she's got to pay somebody pretty well because if you really go down to the larger name catering company instead, they still offer benefits. 
So how do you do? You still differentiate with ownership with something like that, or is it like right hand guy, those types of things? Well, and, and I'm a huge believer. You heard me say this: when it's costing you not to do something in business, you better do it. Yeah. So if Sally <clears throat> needs to pay somebody fifty two thousand dollars a year, in other words, it's costing her fifty two thousand not to do it, yeah. then she will do it. Um, does that morph and evolve into, you know, Sally's? $52,000 employee becomes her legacy someday? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe Sally's training her competition. That's the other risk you have. Where she opens <clears> up <throat> shop next Yeah, where, where Sally's underling decides Sally's stupid and ignorant. She's going to go open her own business. So there's inherent risk with, with all of this. But you'd love to believe that if Sally has opportunity to grow personally and professionally, yeah. she has an environment that's fun and motivating, it's exciting, and it challenges them to be better, and she's paying them a fair wage with the opportunity someday to be the legacy. Why would she leave? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to um, put that and probably a good way to cut this off for our first um, go around at this. Uh, I just want to go ahead and say thank you for spending your Sunday evening and your long john sitting and talking to me. And hopefully we couldn't hear Millie clacking around the house too much. So. I appreciate you coming in. Well, this has been, it's been fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Goodbye. Cool. What do you think? I don't know. doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> what did you think? That was good. So what do you guys think? Obviously, um, after the recording, Dad and I were um, not too sure about, you know, Exactly what we thought. This was also recorded February of 2019, so we're a little late releasing it. But um, we hope you guys like it. If you guys have any questions, maybe um, you know some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to reach out to us via social or um, our emails if you want to reach out to me personally. I'll just give you my personal email. It's Sean, S-E-A-N, Kirby, K-I-R-B-Y, 04 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear some feedback and maybe some requests on questions and um, things you'd like to know about us. So with that, thanks for listening.